Well, everyone, I'd like to welcome you to our final session of Roots for this semester, session number 13. We have traveled a long way from the beginning to the end. We're in chapter 29 of 31 chapters called The Story. And tonight we deal with Paul's mission. This entire chapter of the story deals with the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That's not surprising, considering how much the New Testament concerns him. In fact, nearly two-thirds of the book of Acts focuses on Paul. At least 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament are written by Paul. How could one man travel so much and face so many trials and still remain strong in his ministry through obstacles, circumstances that would turn many people away, and yet he's rock solid at the end? So let's look at his calling. His calling in Acts 9, 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Notice that he's got the call not just to the Gentiles, we focus on that a lot, but to kings, to the people of Israel, and the Gentiles. Now go to Paul's mission. That was his calling. Paul's mission in Acts 13 is two of them... Uh, two, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Now, here comes the mission. By the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in their Jewish synagogues. John was with them as a helper. They proclaimed the word of God. Ultimately, his mission was to preach the Word of God. Preach the message of Christ to the Jew first. That's why he would go to a synagogue before he would go out and talk to the Gentiles. And then we go to Acts 13. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you, Jewish people, first. And since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. How do you think the Jewish people accepted that one? For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvations to the end of the earth. That's quoting Isaiah 49, 6, by the way. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So he spoke to kings. He spoke to Gentiles. He spoke to Jews. And when the Jewish people rejected him, he would go and focus on the Gentiles. By the way, he spoke to kings at the end of his ministry. He's before King Agrippa. He even ends up in the end of his life before Caesar. After God showed Paul that he would be his ambassador to the Gentiles. Throughout his three missionary journeys, Paul made great strides for the Gospels in cities and in regions that, he had never, that had never heard the message of Christ before. So let's read an example, Acts 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopolis, yeah, you say that, and he said this, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. Now, he's in Athens, Greece. And this is the intellectual center of that day. And what's he find? An inscription on an altar to an unknown God, just in case they've missed one. Now, Paul said, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else from one man. Now he's talking about Adam. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he... God determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. He even establishes nations and geographical boundaries. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul preaches to the Gentiles in Athens, Greece, about the God that was unknown to them so that they might know him. And by the way, they preached, uh, Paul preached that, that he, um, all of this begins with one man, and that man was Adam. But even as Paul made great advances for the cause of the gospel, he still faced great opposition through his travels. Throughout his letters, Paul speaks a great deal on the sufferings among the followers of Christ. And he lets the churches know that if you come and follow Jesus, you're going to face trials, you're going to face difficulties, and it's going to be a commonplace. And much of the American church struggles with this because most of our American culture never had to deal with persecutions or trials or suffering for becoming a Christian because the nation was pretty much Christian, at least in its behavior. But something has changed of late. We can see it changing in our generation. Paul wrote many letters to the churches he had visited and planted, checking in on them, but also encouraging them to press on despite the trials they would face and the difficulties that they would encounter, some of which would even come from within the body of Christ itself. Not all of the opposition would be on the outside of the church. Some of it would be inside the church. Same today. Paul seemed to need uh, seemed to need to send extra encouragement and extra rebuke to a particular church, the church at Corinth. Let me read you an example of that. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. Well, what's that tell you right now? There's disagreements. That you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind, body, and thought. So there's, there's quarreling inside the church at Corinth. Verse 11, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no, no one can say that they were baptized into my name. 
Yes, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Paul clarifies his mission. I didn't come as Paul the Baptist, Paul the baptizer, like John the Baptist. No, I came to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, not because I came up with this idea or how to do it, not with human wisdom. Let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I love that verse because it describes the power that allowed Paul to complete his mission. It is the power of the Holy Spirit working inside the surrendered heart of Paul, carrying out the calling of Christ in his life. Not not by human wisdom, because if human wisdom comes and tries to get its way with the gospel, the cross will be emptied of its power. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Throughout the countless travels Paul took on, uh, the countless opposition that he faced, and, and the question always remains this, how did he endure under such opposition? How did he stay faithful? He was sure of his calling, because this would be great for us to understand uh, today. He was sure of his calling, and he never lost sight of his calling or his mission. They just seemed to be preeminent in his life. His calling, his mission was clear. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He's talking about when Jesus comes in his resurrected form. He appears to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, uh, he, he, he appeared to me, Paul, as one abnormally born. It's like I was too late to get in the first group. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. There's his humility that makes him powerful. In his weakness, God's strength is made perfect. Because I persecuted the church. So Paul, when he was Saul, before he became a believer, he persecuted the church. Thus, he did not consider himself worthy to be called an apostle of Christ. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. It was not without effect. It had a powerful influence on his life. So this is something about Paul. He constantly looked forward to the reward at the end. Not looking back, focused on the back when his failures were persecuting the early church. He was constantly looking forward, focused on the future. Now, I'm going to tell you just something, a side note personally. That's one of the most important things for me to endure long term. Is I have to keep my eyesight set on what I see the future. Um, My hope is that uh, my deliverer is coming. The bridegroom's coming for the bride. And in days when this gets really hard, it is that hope that sustains my faith. And I'm convinced Paul was the same. Let's go to Philippians 3.13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's not received all that God has for him. But one thing I do, one thing, I have not taken hold of everything God has promised of me. It's hard right now in the time of waiting. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and straining toward that's ahead of me, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's how he sustained himself through all the trouble. We cannot measure the impact that the Apostle Paul had on the Gentile world. 
all the way up to today, right now, in this session, the Apostle Paul, the impact that he made. I've often thought of Paul as God's tool to fulfill this Isaiah prophecy. Many people uh, maybe are curious about this prophecy, but it's written in Isaiah, but then the Apostle Paul quotes it in the letter to the Galatians. Let, let me read it to you, Galatians 4.27. It's kind of a uh, mystery to some people. It says, as Isaiah said, now this is in the New Testament, as Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth, Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that, but I want to tell you, I think the Apostle Paul, his ministry, his calling to the Gentiles is a fulfillment of the Scripture. The desolate woman in that Scripture is a picture of the Gentiles of the future. How many Gentiles in the future? And he promised that Israel, that they would, that the children of Israel would be more than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. And yet, even in the scripture, in Isaiah, it says this, For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. Sarah is the woman who lives with her husband. The desolate woman is a picture of the Gentile world that will come uh, apart from this bloodline seed of Abraham through Isaac. And the Gentiles, how many will be saved through the recorded gospel message of Christ through the Apostle Paul? I, I don't, is there going to be, are there going to be more Gentiles totally than there were Jewish people? I don't, I don't know. That scripture would lead you to believe that maybe there's even more. Maybe even more. So let's go to chapter 30, Paul's final days. Here's a funny illustration. Picture a mother teaching her son to eat. The mother is patient and kind. The son is throwing a fit. Here you go, honey. You can hold the spoon and scoop the corn all by yourself, like this. The mother holds her own spoon, scoops up some corn, puts it in her, in her mouth in an effort to show her son how it's done. As the mom eats, she says, this is delicious. Using a spoon is fun. Her son shakes his head vigorously. No, you feed me. A minute later, he throws the spoon on the floor. Feed me, mama feed me. He cries, exasperated. The mother slides her chair a little closer to her son, looks right into his teary eyes. Sweetie, she says, you're a big boy, perfectly healthy. You should be feeding yourself. You're 23 years old. Now, that story sounds a little goofy, but it is the reality of many in the modern church. 23, 33, 43, and they're still not feeding themselves. Still lack spiritual maturity. Still like children. Not only unable to feed themselves spiritually, but because they can't feed themselves, they also can't feed others. Unable to complete the mission and calling of the church, which is to spread the gospel. How will the church... So here's the question. How will the church survive over time when the apostles die? How are they going to make it? How, what will happen to the church when all those who have seen and lived with Jesus have passed away? So look at Jesus, his discussion with Thomas after the resurrection. 
John 20, 29, Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Remember Thomas, he said, unless I see you myself and touch you, you know, I will not believe. Because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those, now he's going to be talking about the future. He's talking about us. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they still believe. This brings up chapter 30 of the story, the next to the last in our series from beginning to the end. Paul's final days. If the average life expectancy of man is 70 years in human history, just as an example, there would need to be 28 generations of people who will feed themselves and feed others for the gospel of Jesus to have existed in our generation. Do you see what I'm saying? In 2,000 years, if the average life expectancy of a person is 70 years, we would need 28 generations of adults able to feed themselves and feed others for the gospel to have arrived with us today. Paul's life was a constant chiseling away of anything that kept him from looking like Jesus. And then he turned that chisel onto all who would follow in faith of Christ, cutting away everything that would prevent him becoming Christ-like. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 3.1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Now, the problem with that is he's writing to a church. What's wrong with the church? They lack spiritual maturity. They're 23 years old and still need somebody to feed them. I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? You're acting like the world. You're not acting like the supernatural Holy Spirit-filled body of Christ. You lack spiritual maturity. If you had spiritual maturity, these issues would not be in your house. They would not be in the church. Paul understood that the gospel would need to be entrusted to spiritual men who would pass it along to spiritual men, who would pass it along to spiritual men taking a treasure that had found themselves, and then passing that treasure on to future generations. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, Paul said, what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance. What is it? What is this treasure he passed along to the people behind him? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. It was prophesied. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we've been healed. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then brothers stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. Stand firm, hold to the teachings, hold to the teachings, hold to the teachings. Why? Because you won't be able to pass to the next generation that which you've lost in your generation. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say, 
Paul's talking to young Timothy. The things that you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Give the treasure to somebody who's trustworthy so they'll give the treasure to somebody who's trustworthy. So they'll give the treasure to someone who's trustworthy. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Why does he bring up the hardship and the soldier? Because there's opposition to this treasure. I want to say something very important here. I am convinced, based on the words of Christ, that the church is the unstoppable movement of God. For 2,000 years, there have been powers, supernatural powers, um, in the heavenly realms and on the earth, trying to stop, thwart the work of the church. It, it cannot be stopped. It is unstoppable because God has commissioned it. There are things that are going to happen. If Timothy or one of us, here's, what I'm, here's the point I want to make. If Timothy in Paul's letter or one of us fails, God will raise up somebody to take our place. We miss the blessing and the church moves on as planned by the power of God. See, I don't think that anybody particular is going to fail from a human perspective and stop the work of the church. I don't think the church can be stopped. If the church could have been stopped because of people, it would have already been stopped. But it's the body of Christ. All power, dominion, and authority belongs to him. You cannot stop him. So I use the Old Testament story of Esther to maybe focus on this point. In the time of Esther, there had been a decree, all the Jews are going to be killed. Um, let, me, let me just read it, verse 12, Esther 4. When Esther's word were, words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Esther had this idea that I can hide in the castle, I can hide in the palace and they don't know I'm a Jew when all the Jews were scheduled to be executed. I can hide and escape the spiritual war. No, you can't. So, let me just start over. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he's the wise one. He sent back this to Esther. Do, you, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. You cannot hide. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. If, if God doesn't use you to rescue us, he'll raise somebody else up to rescue us because he's going to rescue us because his word is that he's our deliverer. He's going to rescue us. But you and your father's house, you'll perish. And he'll just raise up somebody else. So I bring that to the church. That if God wants to use you and the church to do a great work or small work or medium work or a big work. And if you don't choose to follow in that work, he'll raise somebody else up to do it. And you'll miss the treasure. But the church cannot be stopped. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position... Mordecai says this to Esther, for such a time as this. Who knows, and I often think about this for the church today. What if we're exactly, and, and not, not what if, I believe that we're exactly where he wanted us to be 
in human history, in American history, in church history for such a time as this. We've been appointed for this season, for this generation. The question is, are you going to be a part of his plan or are you going to let it go around you while he raises up somebody else? One more time. Look at Paul's instruction to Timothy while he was in prison. While Paul was in prison. Endure hardship. 2 Timothy 2.3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It was hard for Esther to face the king. Because she would be facing death if he didn't accept her in this moment. Um, so in Acts verse 9... Uh, it, the hardship, Paul always made it clear. He, he, one thing Paul never did, he never told the church, if you'll come follow Christ, all your problems will be over. He told them just the opposite. You come follow Christ, you're, you're going to be in for a war. You're going to be in for a battle. And, Acts, and this all sprung from his origins. Acts 9, 15. Uh, this is his calling. When Paul first gets the calling of God, uh, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, and he's talking about Paul. This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And here comes the, the catch. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. So Paul knew from the very beginning that this calling was going to come with great suffering and hardship. And it did. So he didn't preach... Um, he didn't preach a message that coming to Christ is going to be easy. And it's not easy. Even today, it's not easy. I want to focus on some of Paul's last days of freedom when he was meeting with the elders at the church at Ephesus. I got to tell you, when uh, several years ago, when I really got into this part of the scripture, I've always been moved by this scene when Paul is with the Ephesian church elders. He's on the beach. He's going to be heading to Jerusalem, and they're all weeping because they know something that they didn't know until Paul told them. Let, let me look at that. Acts 20, verse 21. Paul says this, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks... He's talking to the elders, the leadership of the church at Ephesus. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when's the last time you told somebody to repent and they were, took it as uh, something nice? It's, repentance is hard. And now something is changing in Paul's future. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I, I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Paul makes one thing clear. All of my life will be meaningless if I don't do this one thing God has assigned me to do. Testifying of the gospel of God's grace. Testifying, what is the gospel of God's grace? You don't have to die. God loved the world so much that he gave his son so that you would not have to die. He knows, Paul knows the trouble that's coming. But he also knows what he's supposed to do. 
Now, this is so important. He knows there's going to be opposition, but he also knows that he's got a job assignment that he must complete. And the job assignment, the calling, is so powerful in his life. And the future is so sure in his faith that he's willing to do whatever it takes, even unto death. Look at the love and the emotion in this scene. This is what I talked about earlier about this. They're on the beach and they're not going to see him anymore. And it's just, it's sad. Verse 36. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed. They all wept. And they all embraced him. And they all kissed him. It's moving. This is the guy who told them about eternal life. This is the guy that raised them out of the darkness by telling them the truth. This is the guy that loved them enough to tell them how their, their families, their children, their future could be eternal. They loved him. I mean, he was, he was the messenger who brought this treasure to, their, to Ephesus, to their town. What grieved them most, verse 38, was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship, and he goes to Jerusalem, and they never saw him again. He headed for Jerusalem. Now, some people would look at this and say, if the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that in Jerusalem there's going to be hardship and suffering and change and all this, then don't go to Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. And also telling him that when you get there, it's going to be really bad. Even though he knows there's hardship. There's even a prophet that comes and tells him about the trouble that's ahead. And it's like, do you really need to tell me this? I mean, when I read this, it's like, okay, Agabus, do you really need to tell me this? It's not encouraging me. Acts 21.10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He's prophesying to Paul. They're, they're going to tie you up and hand you over to the, the, the Gentiles. At that point, it'd be the Roman authorities. When we heard this, these are the people surrounding Paul. We and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Just don't go. Agabus is a prophet. He's reliable. He speaks the truth. You go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you in chains and carry you away and give you to the Romans. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem, even knowing this is going to happen. It's prophesied. Agabus is telling them the truth. Wow, what faith and what purpose. And he said, I'm going anyway. All you're doing is making me weep more by begging me not to go. And the question was, was Agabus right? If you look at the story, was Agabus right? Yep. Let me read it to you. Agabus was so right. 
Go to verse 30, chapter 21. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, kill Paul, news reached the commander of the Roman troops, Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now here comes Agabus' prophecy. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. But he still went. He knew. He knew he was going to face this. He didn't know the details of it, the exact details or maybe the exact timing, but he knew, but he went to Jerusalem anyway because the Holy Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. Paul had trusted his very life into the hands of God. Now, let's compare that to Esther's decision. I used Esther's story in Mordecai um, that he's going to raise up somebody else. If you think you can hide in the, in the palace, you're wrong. He'll just, you'll be lost and he'll raise up somebody else. So using that same Esther story, go to verse 16. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me, Esther said. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And here it comes. Here's the final conclusion. And if I perish, I perish. You know, Paul saying this, I'm going to Jerusalem. And if I perish, I perish. Esther says, I'm going to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Why do I make a big deal out of that point? At some point, you got to count the cost. And if I perish, I perish. But then there's the resurrection. You see, that's the whole message of Paul. That's why it's so powerful. Because the resurrection is bigger than perishing. To the Jews, the Gentiles were pagan and unclean. How could God care about them? In fact, when they put Paul in chains in that scene I read a moment ago, it's because Paul made the statement that, that he had become a preacher a Jewish preacher to the Gentiles. And when he said that, it was over. Because to them, the Gentiles were unclean, unworthy of God. Paul, a Jew, had been specifically called to tell the Gentile world about Jesus, and that call made him an enemy, an enemy of many of the Jewish people. So Paul is jailed in this scene. What happens next? He's jailed. The Jews plot his death, but God did not abandon him, but sent a word of encouragement and purpose to him while he's in jail. Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. So how he knows he's not going to die in Jerusalem because God just says you're going to Rome. Take courage. How important was that word from God in that moment? And I think back, listen, so many times there's a certain word of God in a certain moment of your life that strengthens you enough, that gives you enough resolve and purpose to go on and face whatever it is you need to go through. Paul was on the right side and he knew it. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this. So let's go to verse 12, Acts 23. 
The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Do you think they hate this guy? They think they're being righteous in killing him because he's gone over from their perspective. He's gone over to the dark side. They have no idea that he's gone over to the light side. So they take this vow not to eat or drink until he's dead. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case, and we will set up. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. We're going to set a trap, and as they transfer him from, from Caesarea back to Jerusalem, we'll kill him. I guess they all starved to death. You ever thought about that? At what point did they break their fast? They vowed to God that they would not eat until he's dead. They're on the wrong side. I suppose they all starved to death or they broke their vow. God dispatches the following to deliver Paul from their plot. It makes me want to laugh because these guys, um, uh, they bound themselves to kill Paul. And God's response, listen, 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, um, 70 mounted troops on horseback, and they gave Paul a horse to ride just to get him out of town, just to get him out. Paul reached, excuse me, Paul preached the gospel of Christ in Rome, just like Jesus told him. You preached in Jerusalem, you're going to preach in Rome. And you know what Rome was? This is so important. It was the center of the Gentile world. The world would be forever changed by this man in chains. The first two years were lived in relative freedom, but eventually Nero would place Paul in a gloomy dungeon awaiting death. At the end of Paul's life, he proclaimed these immortal words to all who would follow him as, they had, as he followed Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.1, we know these to be some of the final words written by the Apostle Paul before he is executed. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, talking to Timothy, talking to the church, talking to us right now. I think he's talking to me. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He knows he's about to die. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, and not only to me, and not only to me, but to all, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I make no apology tonight. I long for his appearing. If you know me, you know I long for his appearing. With one chapter to go in the story, I summarize with the following. 
Israel, the Old Testament, revealing the first coming of Jesus and everything they did. And the church in the New Testament church age is right now revealing the second coming of Jesus. Maranatha, Hosanna, hallelujah, and amen. Come soon, Lord, save us. Begin to reign. Make it so. Here we go. Last chapter. Chapter 31, the end of time. The title of this last chapter is the end of time, or maybe it should be titled the beginning of eternity. Revelations begins with the apostle John's encounter of the man he had spent three years 24-7 with. But this time, he looks different. John had spent three years with Jesus constantly, and now he's going to be shocked. He looks different. Revelation 1-12. I, John, turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with the golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool and as, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand were seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, and when I, John, saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, John. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He doesn't look the same. That's the first thing I notice. He doesn't look the same, but it's still him. It's still Jesus, but he doesn't look the same. This time, he's not the suffering servant Jesus. He's glorious. John was there for the transfiguration. Now listen carefully. John was one of the guys there for the transfiguration, but even that didn't prepare him for this moment. Golden sash, head of hair, head and hair white like snow, wool like snow or wool, eyes of blazing fire, feet like glowing bronze, his voice like mighty rushing waters, stars, heavenly stars in his right hand, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and his face shining like the sun. John falls down when he sees him like a dead man. And I love Jesus' response to John don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last. I want you to think about something. I am the first and the last. Let me, it means much more than this, but it starts here. I am Genesis to Revelation. I am Genesis. I am Revelation. I am the beginning and the end. What's this whole series? From the beginning to the end. It's him. In Genesis, he's the woman's seed that will crush the serpent's head. In Revelation, he's the one who makes John fall down, but says, don't be afraid. I am the beginning and I am the end. 
I was there in the Garden of Eden and I will be in the recreated Garden of Eden on the new earth by way of the Garden of Gethsemane. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys. He's in charge. All power, dominion, and authority has been given to him by the Father. I hold the keys to death. I hold the keys to Hades. I'm going to tell you the number one thing. This is something personal for me. When years ago I did this in-depth study of Revelation, the number one thing revealed by Revelation is this. I think I've shared it before. I had it previously spent my whole life seeing Jesus with my mind's eye as the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That changed my life. And then I read and studied Revelation and I saw the eternal Jesus. I didn't see three-year ministry Jesus. I saw forever Jesus. And I have never been the same. This glorious eternal Jesus tells John that it's finished. And I'm going to give you a glimpse into the future kingdoms of men, the new one, the eternal one. Listen carefully, church. Jesus told John to write it all down so future generations would have a hope to hold on to. In Revelation 1-3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Did you know that this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for reading it and another blessing for those who hear it and take it to heart. A blessing for those who adapt their life to this book, to this story from the beginning to the end, which is Jesus. I would speculate that this is one of the least read and least taught books in the New Testament today. Revelation. Why? Why is the blessing attached? Because the time is near. It's what he said, not what I say. The blessing is attached because the time is near. So why does that have anything to do with the blessing? I'm convinced that once you become convinced that the time is near, that the imminent return of Christ is a present reality, two things will always happen. Number one, you will purify your own life of sin. You'll repent, purify, you'll get right with God. And number two, you'll go tell somebody. You'll experience the urgency of evangelism. That if you thought Jesus was coming soon, like in the next 30 days, you would purify your life and you would go tell people. That has always been the calling of the church. Purify your life first. And then go share the good news with somebody who doesn't know. There's the blessing. This is where scoffers say, they've been saying the time is near for 2,000 years, preacher. And the apostle Peter warns us about listening to these scoffers. Now, yes, people have been saying for 2,000 years that Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. But in 1948, when Israel became a nation of fresh, something changed in that statement. And even more, in 1967, when Israel takes possession of Jerusalem, something changed. Jesus had prophesied, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch Abba Shem Adonai. He didn't say, you won't see me again ever. You, the next time you see me, you will be in Jerusalem. And you will cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because he will be coming. 
But they would have to be back in Jerusalem for that prophecy to be real and to be fulfilled. From 70 AD to 1967, that prophecy could not have been fulfilled. So when people look at me and say, you know, preacher, they've been talking about this for a long time. I say, yeah, they have. But I was 10 years old when Israel took possession of Jerusalem. Something has changed. Pay attention. Second Peter 3. First of all, Peter said, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where's this coming, you promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. It's all the same. In 1967, something changed. In 1948, something changed. It'll silence the scoffers. So then Jesus writes seven messages to seven church and tells John, write it down. Now, you got to get this. It's seven messages to seven churches. 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 Now, I've often summarized, I did that tribulation series here a while back, and I summarized that inside these seven letters to the seven churches is clearly how to escape the tribulation, how to escape the coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. And not just escape the tribulation, but escape the coming horrors that follow the tribulation, which is eternal separation from God in hell. How can, you, how can we escape? How, how can we escape? God's wrath and judgment will be one day poured out upon the earth. In the tribulation, followed by the final white throne judgment and hell itself. How do we escape? I'm going to close this series out with reading a portion out of all seven of these because this is how we escape the coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. We listen to the words of Christ to the church. Church number one, Ephesus. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, church, he's talking to a church. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. So repent. Church number two, Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Church, he's talking to the church. Some of you are going to suffer opposition. Some of you will go to jail. But those who endure to the end, he'll give you a crown of life. Without the crown of life, you face death. Church number three, Pergamum. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin by eating sacrifice, food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also hold to those teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come and to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The practice of the Nicolaitans were practicing religion by, by participating in sexual immorality. Sound familiar? Repent. Repent. Or I will come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. What is the sword of his mouth? His own word. Church number four, Thyatira. All of these are how to escape the coming horrors. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess, but her teaching, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality appears the second time. Repent. Church, repent. This is how you escape the coming horrors. Church number five, Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you, church, you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it. And repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. Do you see the word repent a whole lot in these churches? This is how you escape the coming horrors. Number six, Philadelphia. This is the only church, by the way, let me insert this. This is the only church that didn't receive an open and clear rebuke from Jesus. Perhaps they were good at two things. Let's go to verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. See, I'm convinced this simple truth is what, why they didn't get a rebuke, Philadelphia. Two things. Two, uh, there's a door that's open that no one can shut. I believe that's a reference to the church age, the time that he has opened the gospel to the Gentile world. And in that open door period of time, by grace of God, you, Church of Philadelphia, kept two things. You kept my word, and you did not deny my name. The name and the word. The name and the word. It's how you escape the coming horrors. You never compromise on the name. There's one name under heaven you can be saved by, and you never compromise on the word. It is the power of God revealing the truth of God, the person of God. Last one, number seven. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You know what happens after that, after that layout of sea of seven churches? The Bible opens up and it says this, come up here, John, and I will show you what will take place after that. Now, I believe that's a direct reference to the church who is taken away, the legitimate church, the saved bride of Christ, and then something happens. It'll be the last thing in this session. John sees the throne of God and the Father, God the Father, is holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. The Father, God the Father, has the scroll. It's sealed with seven seals. And the question is this. Who is worthy to open the scroll, the seals on the scroll? Many people that read chapter 5 mistakenly look at the scroll, confuse it with the book of life. It's not the book of life. It's the divine plan of God to redeem the lost world of man. And how will he redeem the lost world of man? There is one from the tribe of Judah... A lion from the tribe of Judah who is worthy to open the scroll. One. Now understand that as he opens the first seal, the second seal, the seven seals 
on the scroll. He's going to receive, the father is going to hand the scroll to the lamb. And he will take possession of the title deed to planet earth and open the seals. The king and the kingdom are finally revealed. I'll read the first 10 verses, chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was, could open the, the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Why is John crying? If the Lamb doesn't open the scroll, all of humanity will perish. Verse 5. Then one of the elders says to me, do not weep. See, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Here comes the king. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You know what happens next in Revelation? The tribulation. This is how you escape the coming horrors and stand before the seven, stand, before, stand beside the Son of Man. Is what? Read Revelation, the seven churches. Read the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Father hands the scroll to the lion from Judah, the king that will take possession of the earth. They will reign with King Jesus. Listen carefully. In this story, after the tribulation, they will reign with King Jesus for a thousand years. Yes, I do take literally that 1,000 years. Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of the God. Beheaded for what? Their testimony and the word. The name and the word. They were beheaded. They had not worshipped the beast. They had not worshipped his image. And they had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They, tribulation saints, they came to life and they reigned with Jesus for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for 1,000 years. And let me ask you a question. What would you think it would be like to reign with Jesus for 1,000 years on this present earth? Satan will be in prison during that thousand years, and Jesus will be king in Jerusalem. What do you think it'll be like? Everything will change. Everything. The animal kingdom changes. Everything changes. Life, everything's different. We've traveled 
through 31 chapters. We've traveled through 6,000 years of human history, all to see the beginning at the end. Do you see it? The beginning at the end. All of this, we've gone from Genesis to Revelation, all to find ourselves where? All the way back to the garden where man is able to once again experience the presence of God. We've gone from the beginning to the end. And what is the end? When man goes back to the beginning. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And now the dwelling place of God is with man and they will see his face and he will be their God forever and ever and amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we worship you by reading it. We pray that you would make us spiritually mature so that we would receive it and pass it to those that follow us. And we worship you and we wait for your kingdom to come. And may you reign as king inside of us while we wait for you to reign on this earth. In Jesus' name, and amen.